This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'll be buried in my grave. Carolina, you're watching My Fellow Americans with your host, Spike Cullen. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Oh, thank, thank you so much. Welcome to the show. It's going to be a great show. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm clapping for you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Welcome to My Fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. I am so happy to have you here with me today, Spike Cohen. Today, Wednesday, the 6th of March. I can't believe it's already March. Um, can't. I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, this is a Muddied Waters Media production. Check us out on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, SoundCloud, Twitter, iTunes, Stitcher. We're on Periscope. We're on couple other things that I can't remember at the moment. Uh, Be sure to check us out. Be sure to like and share this video. I want you to share this video now. Turn to your neighbor and say, neighbor, I want you to watch this live anarchist agitprop podcast with me that's going to last about an hour. They'll be so happy you did that. Be sure to share the gift of me, Spike Cohen. Today, kids love it. Uh, I'd like to thank Kroger for this delicious purified drinking water that I drink on this and every episode of My Fellow Americans, Bulavanaka. The intro and outro music that I play on this and every episode of My Fellow Americans from comes from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That is J-O-D-A-V-I. Check him out on Facebook, SoundCloud. Go to his Bandcamp. Buy all of his music on Bandcamp. You'll be so happy you did. Thank you, uh, Mr. Joe Davi. Shout out to Tehran Turks' mom and him, as always. Guys, my guest tonight is someone who I think will be a household name soon enough, and that's why I, consummate opportunist that I am, I'm getting my hooks in on his coattails early. He is, he has quite a resume already. He's the, he was the founder and president of the Young Americans for Liberty chapter at his university, Drake University. Uh, he was the acting chairman of the House Liberty Caucus affiliate in Iowa. Uh, he is now a contributor for uh, Being Libertarian. He is also the co-author of Igniting Liberty, Voices for Freedom Around the World. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to my fellow Americans, Mr. Jake Dorsch. Jake, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. I'm trying to work on being a household name, not quite there yet. Uh, I'm also <laughs> not uh, the uh, podco, uh, podcast host of My Fellow Americans, but I'm working there. We can't all be the podcast host of My Fellow Americans, but you're definitely <laughs> you're doing you're doing a good job. I'm very happy to have you on. Um, and guys, and I, when Mohammed Shaker introduced us, and I read your book, I knew immediately that I wanted to have you on. So thanks for fitting us in. I'm really happy to to have you. 
Yeah, thank you. I know uh, Muhammad very well. Cool. Yeah. And guys, be sure to comment with your questions and thoughts. And Jake and I will tell you if you are right or wrong. Now, Jake, the first thing I, I ask any new guests when they're on my show for the first time uh, is how you now you're we know you're a libertarian so usually i ask how you would describe your your political beliefs we we already know you're a libertarian but how would you say you came to your beliefs would you say that it was kind of an aha moment or more of an evolution over time talk to us about that yeah that's obviously uh kind of a tough question to answer i think that i kind of grew up as a republican as a conservative republican but i also had these views that uh, essentially i believe that if there's a problem that needs to be fixed we need the government to do it so right. if we have a problem with, you know, say drugs, we or say we have a problem with a foreign power we're going to go take care of, or say if we have an economic crisis, we need to have government fix that problem. So right. at the same time that I had these conservative views on social policy, I also had these kind of socialist Keynesian views on economic policy. And it wasn't until I started hearing Rand Paul, who was not a true libertarian by any means. Um, I like him, but I don't think that either of us really consider him a true libertarian or really a purist. Um, Ron Ron Paul Light, yeah. Yeah, right, right. So from hearing from Rand Paul, but also um, anarcho-capitalist Eric July, who Mm -hmm. shares uh, beliefs similar to yours, I started to kind of question these views that, you know, maybe the free market can fix these problems, and maybe that freedom is the answer over, uh, you know, government wrongdoing and uh, basically the state taking control of everything. Right, right. And so that brought you into, uh, into college, and I guess you started... Uh, so you went to Drake and I guess they didn't already have a libertarian presence there. Nope. They did not. Not much. And so what, what is the pro by the way, what's the pro cause I've had people on that have been involved with their chapter of young Americans for Liberty. What, what exactly is involved there? Do you have to actually like petition to your, I guess, student government or whatever to be allowed to be on campus or how does that work? Yeah. Uh, student government universities, honestly, is just as inefficient as you know like the federal government um i I put my petition in in september uh of like the first semester i got out of college put my petition in there to be create an organization we of course are nationally recognized we have you know several hundred chapters right and also had like 25 members right away and i was not actually recognized student organization until march so that meant that i had you know seven months of talking to you know senators talking to uh people within the university trying to actually you know get through the process i not even get a senate hearing until uh, like march like second march third something like that so i wait seven months just to get a hearing to become an organization and then i can actually start um officially playing club meetings and stuff like that so you know these liberal universities don't make it easy for you to start organizations now was that because or maybe but was it because they're just that inefficient or was it because of a bias against what you were trying to do or, or like a combination of both um, probably a combination of both, but I think in Drake's case, it's more so um, just overall inefficiency. I think that once I actually got out of the Senate floor, the mostly registered Democrats ended up voting for it, and I really respect that decision because you know students, at least the ones that voted there, uh, are obviously pro-free speech and they are in favor of being expressed on campus. They don't really agree with. So I think in, in my case, it was mostly uh, mostly inefficiency, but I could, I know that other universities, especially places like Berkeley. It's more so the opposite. Oh yeah, they fight. They fight hard against that kind of stuff. So, and then, so then that gets you. Uh, so, because you, you you have, as I mentioned in your intro, you've been building uh, quite a resume at a young age. You're you're 41, right? <laughs> a little older, a little older. I'm actually 65. I self-identify as 65 year old. So, I can <laughs> so you start getting Medicare right now. I think you're one, one year yeah. off from Medicare. Um, 
So then, so then, then you end up, you're the uh, House Liberty Caucus affiliate. And is that, so that's the, what, the Republican House Liberty Caucus? Um, I'm actually not running that anymore, but I was, uh, I, I was involved in getting that charter in the state of Iowa, yes. Very cool. And you're, you're in Wisconsin, correct? Uh, no, no, no. Um, I was in Wisconsin. I, I, that's where I grew up, and I currently go to school in Iowa. That's where Drake is. Oh, uh, okay. A lot of confusion. I get it, you know. No, no problem. No problem. So, so okay, cool. So then that gets us to this book that you uh, that you helped uh, co-write, um, "Igniting Liberty: Voices for Freedom Around the World." Tell us about. I I I, ended, I told you I was going to at least read your uh, your chapters. I ended up reading the whole thing over the weekend. Um, it's a really really good read, guys. By the way, check it out. It is if you have a, a, a an Amazon, if you have a Kindle Unlimited account, it's a free download. Uh, if not, it's uh, five ninety nine to download. You will be very, very happy that you got it. Be sure it's in the the link is in the show notes. Be sure to be sure to check that out. Um, but but tell us about the book, uh, how it came about, and what you guys wanted to accomplish with it. Yeah, several different uh, authors on being libertarian. It's a big Facebook page. I'm sure most of your listeners have heard of it. Oh, it has sure. seventy thousand uh, Facebook likes right now. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of them want to write a basically a political manifesto for libertarianism. You know, there's books out there such as What is Conservatism, which was written in 1950s, 1960s, that kind of uh, puts together the, the overall tenets of conservatism. Right. We obviously have a Kansas manifesto if you want to put that in the trash bin. And we, of course, wanted to make our own version of that. So several libertarian authors got together decided to kind of combine several different ideas into one. Uh, the first time we tried it, it didn't really work out. People really put in the effort in. We uh, just had to reboot it again, and then... Um, about five to ten authors got together. We all, you know, took in certain sections of the book. We all wrote different chapters, different topics. Larry Sharp was actually uh, willing to do our forward, mm-hmm. and yeah, obviously publishing a book that incorporates a lot of different ideas, a lot of different authors, and touches base on you know about twenty twenty five different uh, you know libertarian ideas and issues. Yeah, it was really good, and I, what I liked about it was there seemed to be kind of a mix of philosophy and and the the brass tacks of it you know so because what happens is people will say and i experienced experienced this as as a as a, an anarchist people say well what is it you believe you know with, with libertarianism or with anarchy or whatever else and you'll tell them and then their immediate next question is well but how would i mean unfortunately it's stuff like who would build the you know who would uh, pave the roads or whatever who would build the my, my roads but but it comes down to, well, how would that actually work? And so there seemed to be kind of a good mix of the philosophical underpinnings for it as well as how it actually works. Now, your contributions to Igniting Liberty were about uh, gun rights, uh, drugs, uh, free trade, and monetary policy. Is that correct? Very good. Right. Thank you. Um, and so talk. I, I, gun rights is something we talk about a lot on this show. So I, I always like to get uh, my, my guest perspectives on that. Tell us about... First of all, when when I read your your sections, I was expected I expected you to write mostly about you know libertarian philosophy on these different subjects, and you did touch on that somewhat, um, as did some of the other co-authors, of course. But I, I was impressed with the tack that you took of diving very deeply into a countless number of stats um, uh, to essentially explain why the facts have proven liber- libertarianism to be correct. Um, and I assume that was an intentional strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that there's enough people that are kind of pushing the idea that, you know, the Second Amendment is something we, we ought to protect, that we have to have some kind of fundamental rights to protect ourselves. Right. Um, the problem is that a lot, of these, a lot of these emotions from the left wing that wants to take away gun rights is a lot of it is fueled by um, false narratives that are driven by statistics and empirical data. 
Um, right. Once you actually pour through the information, you realize that there's not a whole lot of evidence actually protecting the idea that we should, you know, start universal background checks, start taking away the rights of many Americans. You right. know, there's several studies on there that I cited. One of them is the fact that um, the University of Pittsburgh did a study of all the uh, homicides in Pittsburgh, in Pittsburgh and found that um, 81 81% of the guns found in violent crimes uh, were actually not legally owned by the person that used it. So, you know, the, the legal gun owners, you know, people like you know, maybe yourself if you own a gun, or people that are actually pushing these gun, this gun agenda, um, aren't the people that are actually committing homicides, aren't the people that are committing mass shootings. Um, right. The big problem is the black market. The big problem is because we have, uh, you know, crime in the United States. That's the problem. Right, of course. And, that, and there's that, that cliche that if you outlaw gun, guns, only outlaws will have guns. And it's true i mean it, it if you if you make if you if you say and this is true of anything when you create a black market when you when you ban or greatly restrict something and you say okay you can't do it or else you're you know you're a criminal you invite the criminal element to those things so now you have a situation where the only people who are who largely who have guns are either the government or criminals and those are the two groups that are the most likely to actually harm innocent people. So that's not a that's not a good policy. But um, it, it, was, it was interesting because your chapters had bibliographies that took up an entire page. At, at sometimes it was very well researched and, and sourced. But um, talk to us a, a little about um, uh, and I think these two kind of work together: uh, trade and, and monetary policy. Um, it's usually from the left that we hear bad things about, you know, we hear uh, anti-libertarian things about guns. Not always. There are times the right does it as well, but usually it's from the left. Um, and usually when uh, when we talk about, for example, drugs, decriminalizing or, or legalizing drugs, most of the anti-libertarian talk about that comes from the right. Not always, but usually. With trade and monetary policy, these are things that you hear almost equal amounts of anti you know, anti-libertarian, anti-freedom stuff from both the authoritarian left and the authoritarian right. And then when it comes to monetary policy, the vast majority of people really don't even understand that. So talk to me about your thoughts on, on trade and, 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 and sound money. Yeah, so I'll talk about trade um, for a little bit. I guess in theory, you have factions of both the, the left wing and also the right wing that support and are also against uh, free trade. So you kind of have allies and enemies on both sides. Right. Um, on the left, people are usually for um, free trade, are usually the kind of like the, the peace of foreign policy folks that believe that free trade it kind of is a, invites them to kind of an, an togetherness in right. the international community, and that if we have free trade with you know Mexico, it's going to make for better relations with Mexico. And then the right. ones that left that generally disagree with free trade have the belief, the false belief, that um, free trade suppresses the wages of workers and makes right. it harder for basically um, the, the, the blue collar working class people of all countries to earn a living. Um, on the right wing, it's usually a little different. The people that are um, against free trade, you know, the, the Trumpers and whatnot, essentially right. believe that um, foreign, uh, basically foreign powers take advantage of the United States through free trade. So places like China, places like Europe, places like Mexico take advantage of the United States when they sign free trade deals with us. And then, of course, the ones that are on the right that are for free trade generally more uh, more uh, free market. At least they try to advertise themselves as free market folks. But um, it's interesting because it really divides both sides. And that's because neither side really has a consistent um, ideology because right. they like to make in both of them. Right. Well, that's kind of a standard thing with the left and right is that it's it's very easy. I say that that the left and right are the most correct when they're exposing the hypocrisy of the other side. 
which is very easy to do because like you said, they don't have a consistent ideology. So it's based on a mix of what uh, politicians on their side are saying, uh, which is usually influenced by whatever lobbying groups have the most power in that party. So it's not a consistent message. A combination of that and just their own personal fears and, and innate feelings about stuff as opposed to like a, a, a uh, any kind of praxis about how they actually got to how they how, how they think about something. Um, like uh, Thomas Sowell would say, they're not thinking, they're, they're feeling. Um, so with, uh, with trade, it seems like both kind of come from a sort of zero-sum way of thinking about things where it's like if this country is benefiting or, or the people living in this country are benefiting from this trade, it must mean that we are losing out. And and obviously that's easy for, so if I'm a factory worker and I lose my job at a, you know, whatever type of factory and it's going overseas, I'm obviously going to be harder to convince than the average person that that in the long run is good for me, right? Like it's a, it's a difficult thing. But overall, most people aren't directly affected by that. So they're, they're going from politicians and pundits and speakers telling them this, this zero-sum lie uh, that, you know, um, that, you know, these jobs are being lost, we're not benefiting, you know, the, the pie is fixed and they're taking more of the pie, we need to fight for our pie. What did the data show you in terms of like job losses and, and, jo- and wage uh, growth or loss and things like that when it actually came to free trade versus protectionism? Yeah, um, the most modern estimates from the uh, from the NAFTA years. There's an analyst uh, from 1994-1999, first five years of NAFTA, found that the most modern estimates found roughly a five to six million net job growth. That means if you take the jobs that were gained because of free trade, detract the ones that are lost because of free trade, that's about five or six million jobs net after after that. Um, right. Not only that, but the unemployment rate in the um, was actually very low throughout the 1990s, and even right. more, um, even larger estimates show that. It might have been larger than 6 million people that gained jobs in the 1990s, just as a result of NAFTA and CAPTA. Um, another uh, book, if you, have to, if you ever read a, um, uh, the author Charles Whelan, he essentially did analysis saying that, yes, well, 37,000 Americans lost jobs every single year um, after NAFTA was created due to, um, obviously, things being outsourced overseas. But right. during that same exact time period, about 200,000 people would be gaining jobs um, every single month, not year, but month. So, you know, if you actually look through the data, um, the, most moder- uh, the most moderate estimates say that about five, six million people got jobs um, over the people that lost jobs as a result. The problem is, the fundamental problem is very few people notice that they lost, uh, that they gained a job because of free trade. Anyone can kind of lose a job and start making point fingers and say that, oh, it's Mexico, it's Canada, it's China, right. it's India, it's Japan. You know, I just lost my job because of some foreigner. But it's very difficult to say that this new plant opened in my hometown that just gave me a really well-paying job that usually pays better than the rest of um, the rest of the jobs in this country is because a foreign company moved here and started opening up jobs to locals, or it's because a pre-existing American company that started selling overseas and started seeing revenue skyrocket opened another facility in my city. Now they're giving me a job. So it's really hard to point to free trade uh, from an individual level as a reason for getting a job. It's very easy to point to it as a scapegoat for losing yours. Right. It's, it's, it's obviously, like I said, you know, this person lost their job, this factory moved to China, Mexico, Vietnam, Canada, wherever. Um, that intrinsically, you don't have to explain that people get that that happened. And then it's very easy to tie that to free trade or just any, you know, just trade in general. Whereas like you said, trying to get people into the weeds of like, you know, very rarely do you hear, 
well, or not, I shouldn't say very rarely. It's easier to say, for example, if a European automaker brings a factory here or if a Japanese company brings a factory here, that is equally easy to tie to free trade and say, see, we're getting jobs as a result of it. But that's not how the vast majority of jobs are created with trade. Like you said, it's it's created through greater, uh, 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 basically greater profit for companies, allowing them to create more jobs. There is some of that importation of jobs as well, but that's not where the bulk of it comes from. So it's, it's hard to, it's hard to, um, to, you know, convert someone on that. Um, especially if they're, you know, still raw and angry from, you know, them or a close loved one losing a job, uh, because of, of trade. Um, putting aside the fact, obviously that, you know, that company more than likely, would have just gone a lot of times would have just gone out of business because they can't compete. So their job was already in jeopardy. It was just a matter of whether someone else was able to get it or whether that company just ceased to exist and some other company propped up, which would effectively be the the same thing. Um, talk to me about monetary policy. That's actually surprisingly on an anarchist podcast that's on its 33rd episode, you would think that we would have hours and hours of talk about monetary policy. And we, we have some well, not not nearly the 33 hours you would expect. Talk to me about what the data showed you when it came to uh, uh, monetary policy and what you took away from that. Yeah, I guess my specific chapter wasn't so much just analysis of monetary policy. It was very much um, looking at the 2008 recession we had right. and the 1922 Great, Great Depression we had. So mm-hmm. it wasn't looking at the years between so much. It was mostly at what caused those two events to occur and what prolonged those events from happening for even longer. So um, I'll, I'll start with the Great Depression, if that's okay. Uh, sure. The Great Depression, there's this really big myth that um, President Herbert Hoover didn't do anything for basically four or five years. Essentially, right. the, the common belief is that you know a free market Republican came into office, being Herbert Hoover, who was very unliked, and didn't really do anything when the uh, market kind of collapsed and, on Black Tuesday, and that's why things essentially got worse. Um, that's, one of those, that's one of the largest false scenarios in the 1929 uh, Great Depression there actually is. Um, first off, he actually uh, began, this is will actually intertwine free trade a little bit. Um, the Smoot-Hawley tariff was passed in, in 1930. That is the largest tariff the United States has ever passed. Right. And even though the intention of that tra- of that trade deal, or sorry, not trade, the tariff, was to actually increase revenues, um, the tariff revenues fell by 49% over just five, six years. So the one the one purpose that tariffs had, it didn't even do. Um, not only that, we also quadrupled the lowest income tax rate and raised the highest tax rate from 25% to 63%. And, that time, and during that five-year uh, time period, we saw that uh, income tax revenues fell by 48%. So all math, but just those two, those two policies alone um, allowed for the economy to worsen than what it already was. That's why the unemployment rate is 25% before, before he left office. And not only that, we also limited immigration. Immigration fell by 90% during the Herbert Hoover uh, era because of um, different policies he passed. So uh, those are some things that prolonged the recession. I'll say the, the greatest thing that caused the Great Depression was likely because the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve decided to increase monetary policy by about 62% between 1921 and 1929. However, the actual amount of um, money, uh, physical monetary capital on the open market only increased by about 1% during that time. That meant that all these banks and financial institutions which were also take advantage of the fact that the um, the interest rate on government loans is also very low. Um, they will be taking in loans from both the government because the interest rate was so low, and then right. they would also be giving out money left and right because uh, they increased the supply so, um, so much, uh, thanks to the Federal Reserve, that when all these loans are dispersed out to the general population and the economy started to have some difficulty, 
just a, it would have been a minor recession if it wasn't for this. But people couldn't pay it back because there wasn't enough cash in the open market. All the assets, the entire uh, and the entire economy were basically stuffed away in loans that couldn't be liquidated, and that's why they couldn't pay people back. And then people now spending money, they couldn't spend on businesses, and businesses collapse, and more people are employed. So the entire situation basically spiraled out of control, and uh, that's why it went on for so long. So, and and kind of not exactly the same, but kind of a similar effect than in in two thousand eight. But before we get to that, the uh, uh, with the depression, so. Like you said, I, I have people when I say, you know, libertarianism that, you know, everything from, I guess, what you would be kind of a minarchist, you know, a, a minimal government that just uh, 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 does the most basic things, I guess, either that are bound in the Constitution or just in, in you know, protecting natural rights uh, and, 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 and kind of protecting and enforcing private property rights, uh, all the way to someone like me who thinks that government is a violation of private property rights and therefore should should not even exist. But that, you know, a very libertarian laissez-faire uh, 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 society, and they'll say, oh, you mean like what caused the Depression? And you have to sort of unpack for them how it was actually uh, a combination of, like you said, bad protectionist nativist policies. You know, we got to keep out these foreigners and their money, and uh, a combination of that with uh, a- 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 their money and their products and everything else, we got to keep them out. And then also bad uh, 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 central banking policies from the Federal Reserve, um, which... Which we've, I mean, it's what ninety eight percent. The 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 dollar has lost ninety eight percent. It's worth two cents on the dollar from when the Federal Reserve was introduced. I think. I thought it was ninety five, but something like that. Something yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah. The 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 U.S. dollar, the Federal Reserve note, is worth pennies on the dollar, two cents, five cents, whatever, uh, than what it was once worth at at one point. Um, so the, oh, my camera went out. Yeah, I uh, noticed that. It kind of froze up a little bit. There we go. Hey, everybody. Um, <laughs> that's interesting. I've had other people's video go out, but not my own. Um, okay, cool. So, yeah, all those things can can you know kind of combine into a perfect storm and make what should have been just sort of a hiccup uh, of a of a um, a recession, which itself was caused by bad government policy, into this horrific thing that made everything worse. In two thousand eight, there were similar things, but not so much with the immigration, but also bad uh, uh, bad government and and monetary policy as well. Talk to us about that. Yeah, um, well, kind of, as I mentioned before, the um, the interest rate during the nineteen twenties was much lower than what the market rate was, and that's because the federal funds rate, which is set by the Federal Reserve. Um, was lower than that, which allowed for banks and financial institutions to uh, invest and in, you know pay to take money out from government. Now, in uh, the 1920s, that was much similar. Uh, we saw the interest rate drop from 5.5 percent to about 1 percent um, within only a like, two-year period under Alan Greenspan. So right. that was a similar situation there that kind of caused um, the uh, Great Recession in 2008. However, there's also this fallacy uh, going around, um, this belief that. Uh, it was also caused by deregulation and the elimination of Glass-Steagall 1999, and that's right. also very uh, untrue as well. There's a number of different policies I noted in the book, um, different uh, laws that are passed. This one in 1992 was passed by Henry Gonzalez in the House that uh, caused some big problems, and that was because uh, the law itself forced the—it um, actually was not Federal, federal Reserve related at all. It was actually related to housing and urban development, and the HUD director— was forced to give out um, through government uh, through GSEs, which um, GSEs, of course, are government-sponsored enterprises. Was forced to give out uh, money to low-income people, and 30% of the loans that, that uh, the HUD director uh, was giving out were supposed to go 
to Americans that would not normally qualify for a loan, Americans that don't have to show proof of income. And these are, of course, given out by GACs, not, um, not so much places like Wells Fargo, not so much Chase Bank. It was given out by, um, uh, it was given out by, by government-sponsored enterprises. So the government forced the HUD director to give up minimum of 30% of his loans to low-income people. And the reason why the housing crisis was created, of course, is because a lot of these people that couldn't really afford these houses were given federally-backed loans, and it would default on them. The government also uh, had an issue. And the entire free market was kind of going and lapsed. So um, the uh, the idea that the, the the housing market was problematic during the 1920s isn't false. However, the reason why that happened uh, definitely is because the free market is not responsible. And another thing to note about Glass-Steagall specifically is that um, if Glass-Steagall uh, was still around, it would prevent a lot of mergers that happened after 2008, after 2009, that actually kind of allowed for the swift recovery after the recession. Um, so places like, um, obviously, Lehman Brothers went uh, bankrupt, but smaller uh, investment firms not be able to bought, be bought out by the larger companies above them. Right. So we've got, and it was called, was it the Community Reinvestment Act? Is that, isn't that what it was called? Clinton's? Yeah. yeah so, yep. right. So in, in the 1990s, uh, 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 Bill Clinton, and I think it was a, a Republican-controlled ha- uh, Congress, so this isn't, you know, blame one side or the other. The government decided to pass a series of, uh, pass a, uh, a, a law, which essentially, um, to try to spur on homeownership. And what they did, like, like um, Jake was just talking about, they had, they were basically giving away loans uh, 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 to people that probably would, that who wouldn't have qualified otherwise, which sounds great, uh, but it's kind of like a, a, a housing Ponzi scheme. You're giving you're getting people into the housing market that wouldn't have otherwise been able to. Um, you're driving up the cost of housing, which can only be affordable to people by having interest rates and mortgage uh, rates very very low and very very accessible. And someone's going to be stuck with that, you know, at the top of that that price apex when the whole thing falls apart, and that's and that's what happened. And of course, it was the taxpayer that was on the hook because you know with the the TARP and uh, uh, TARP Act and all those things that uh, you know gave money, basically bailed out all the the banks and and financial institutions and insurance companies that were involved. I, I was actually in. I I jumped into real estate. Uh, very briefly during the last couple of years of that housing boom, because it was just so easy to make money, especially in, in my area and in, in Myrtle Beach. And um, I routinely met with people who had zero plan to pay their first mortgage loan, much less the next, you know, thir- 29 years and 11 months of, 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 of mortgage payments. Um, they would get these, they were called ninja loans. I'm sure you heard about this in your research, ninja loans. No income, no job or asset verification. You literally just said, they would, I think, pull a credit uh, credit check just to see what your credit score was, uh, but they only use that mildly. And you pretty much said, I'm worth this much, I make this much money, I really super promise that I make this much, and they wouldn't verify it. Um, sometimes they wouldn't even ask, and they would give you loans for as much as uh, whatever the the maximum is for a jumbo loan, I think it was four hundred and sixty thousand or four hundred eighty thousand back in the day, and uh, so people were buying, you know, up to and including half million dollar homes with zero, not just no, you know, I mean, maybe their credit was okay, but they they 
couldn't show that they could afford they could afford it they couldn't even show that they didn't even have to show that they had a job they had no plan to uh to be able to make the payments and they very often would would be you know foreclosed on within a few months the banks were okay with this while uh you know how while uh prices continued to skyrocket because they just foreclose on that person and 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 sell it on the market and, and make more than what the the loan was for but the the problem with that is that again it's going to fail. That's not a problem of the free market because the free market would have never underwritten such a thing without the government behind them forcing them to do it and promising to bail them out if the, if the whole thing fell apart. Am I, am I wrong in my assessment there? No, you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, these were by Freddie May and all those GSCs that um, were lending irresponsibly. It wasn't so much the big banks like you know, Wells Fargo and Chase. Those didn't even go bankrupt or those didn't really, really take much of a hit. It was mostly because of uh, the government that was giving out loans irresponsibly. And that's why... Uh, the problems are created. Right. Um, one of our commenters, uh, one of our viewers, Jacob LaBelle says, where's my tarp money? It's, it's uh, check, keep checking the mail. Uh, it is on its way. I promise you. Um, we will, we will definitely right after the show ends, we'll, we'll, we'll get on top of your, of your tarp loan. So, um, okay, cool. So I want to uh, talk about drugs. We talk, <laughs> we talk about drugs. We actually don't talk about drugs a lot on, on this, uh, on this show. Um, I'm actually, so for those who don't know, I'm a, a recovering addict. I have been clean for 13 years now, uh, 12 years, 13 years, quite a while, over a decade. Um, but the fact that I'm not able to just recreationally enjoy drugs doesn't mean that, uh, I should be able to stop someone else from doing it. And it certainly doesn't mean that we should be, uh, that I, I want to, or that we should be. Uh, you know, putting people in cages as a result of this. Uh, you you got quite a bit into this with drugs, and uh, you talked a lot about Portugal. And I've I've read a little bit, or I've heard a little bit about what Portugal did, but I didn't know all the details. Um, but Portugal had a, a very dramatic change in problems they were having with drugs uh, by changing their policy, uh, which you looked into. Tell tell us about what you found out when you researched that. Yeah, two of the big case studies I did were in Portugal and Switzerland. Um, because both of which uh, were very conservative for many years and right. very skeptical of legalizing drugs to take care of their drug addict problem, and both of them kind of fixed it. Uh, Portugal saw that uh, their revenues from just taxing marijuana after legalizing it were you know, more than double the amount of money they needed just to rehabilitate people that were suffering from drug usage. Um, in Switzerland, and, and Zurich, Switzerland, that was actually the most uh, prominent example I used, in my opinion. Um, that was because uh, the mayor of Zurich, Switzerland, decided to actually give out um, free uh, needles that people used for uh, heroin. Now, of course, at first, that sounds absolutely ludicrous. I mean, it's so <laughs> sounds insane. Ludicrous. Right, right, right. But most of the uh, most of the drug deaths that we see in the United States and throughout the world aren't because the actual drug itself. A lot of times, it's because um, when the drugs are passed around the, the black market, they are improperly given around. There's a lot of health issues as well. You know, right. marijuana has never killed anyone, but there's a lot of marijuana-related deaths because you'll find marijuana laced with rat poison or lace or something like that, they'll right. kill you know, 10 people across multiple states. I mentioned that as well. Um, and uh, in Switzerland specifically, they saw that just by giving this out, just by legalizing and decriminalizing all these drugs and just by taxing them and allowing for themselves to pay for rehabilitation, allowing um, for the uh, people to have these individual rights rather than try and cage them up um, and lock them away for 20 years, uh, led to not just an economic recovery, but also a recovery of most of the addicts. A lot of these parks were cleaned up that were usually full of heroin addicts left and right, um, night and day, and uh, that's because a lot of the um, a lot of the deaths, a lot of the health issues they had previously were kind of fixed by this. Now, 
I'm not really on board with the idea of giving out you know free meals by the government. I'm not yeah. really on board with that quite yet. I think it's a little crazy for me, but uh, obviously it's better than the alternative, which is um, a you know long hard fought drug war that's got, that cost the United States one trillion dollars over you know only five decades. So um, not saying it's necessarily the best solution to deal with that, but it's obviously much better than a very expensive and very heartbreaking alternative. Right, and and people dying of of preventable. Uh, or communicable illness entirely because they're using dirty needles and, and, and all of that. It's interesting that you mentioned. So, doctor either. Go ahead. Well, I say like they can't get a doctor either. You know, medical amnesty is not on the, on the table for many people that um, suffer from drug usage. They can't just go to a doctor and say, you know, doc, you helped me out. I overdosed on cocaine. They just die. You know, right. you can't help people because obviously if you admit to something like that, in most states, um, you could still go to jail for, you know, uh, decades depending on the situation all right yeah and that's i mean that's i hope everyone can agree that that is absurd um you mentioned you know it's not and again i'm i'm an anarchist i don't think government should be doing anything obviously we don't want government you know taxing us you know robbing us to pay for people to have needles but here's what happened here's what brings us to that so for example in arizona um for many years uh, uh people were pushing for um needle sharing uh but 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 actually like private needle sharing like allowing basically legalizing allowing people even if you didn't legalize heroin legalizing giving people needles in order for them to be able to to use to use these drugs that they shoot um safely and or as safely as you can shoot a drug into your veins and the government said no absolutely not you're aiding and abetting uh you know criminal activity and you know we'll we'll treat you very harshly if you try to do it and so, and this is where there's an anarchist uh, um, philosophy, philosophical uh, thing called, uh, it's called uh, prefiguration. And so it's the idea of answering the question of without government, who would do X by showing them who would do it, us. And so you started having these people who were illegally giving out needles to, uh, to, to addicts and they saw a, a rapid uh, decline in, in uh, the spread of the illnesses. You saw uh, less hospital visits. You saw less uh, deaths overall and less illness. And it, so it was a positive thing. You saw less uh, dirty needles all over the street because part of it was bring us your you know dirty needles and we will exchange them for clean needles. So it was not just to to clean up the you know the the the, the actual drug uh, use, but to actually clean up the streets too. And a lot of people were thrown in jail for it. A lot of people faced trial for it. And what ended up happening was it reached a a point where it was proven to be such a good success that you had erstwhile conservative anti-drug politicians saying okay well we'll at least legalize it we'll we'll let you know you can we'll at least legalize the the uh you know the the needle sharing and so now needle sharing is a very big thing in in arizona now it's now legal or at least decriminalized i don't know if it's legal but they let them do it so i think it's decriminalized um but so that's a perfect example where you don't have to have government do it government could just get out of the way and let the the market do it because we all have an interest in having streets that don't have needles all over them or dead people all over them so if someone said to me hey would you like to donate five bucks or ten bucks to help you know us keep our our streets cleaner and safer yeah i'll probably do that and that's really all it would take it's not it's not an incredibly expensive thing so um so that's very interesting that they did that um it is looking increasingly at least with marijuana like within i mean you have a republican president saying he'll sign legalization so i think we're pretty close to that um and i think it'll be uh so i guess i'll get your thoughts on this um 
assuming that we're going to have legalization or decriminalization of marijuana in the next couple few years, how long do you think it's going to take that same line of thought to go from, I mean, it took, <laughs> what, 80 years to go from alcohol to, to marijuana. How much, how long from, you know, weed to the harder drugs, the drugs people have actually died from, do you think it'll take for that, the, the common thought to be like, well, I'm against using it, but it should at least be legal. How long do you think that'll take? Um, for legalization or decriminalization? Because there is a difference. Legalization says you can go outside um, and, you know, store an entire line of cocaine off a trash can. Decriminalization says you can still do it. You just have to be careful about, you know, how you do it because even though it's not technically legal, the government can still seize what you have or, you know, there can still be some kind of societal repercussions. So there's a little bit of a difference between the two. Well, let's say decriminalization then. I, I guess just the idea that we're not going to put people in cages for using something. Okay. Yeah, um, I'll say decriminalization could happen um, within uh, 10, 20 years. I guess with legalization, it's really hard to tell. Right. Um, I think that outside the very far left, there aren't many people that are on board with um, full-blown legalized meth and full-blown legalized <laughs> cocaine. And right. uh, I'm not so sure if I'm, I'm for it, to be honest. I think I'm mostly for decriminalization of really hard drugs, not so much legalization of it. I think that there should be some kind of way in the middle between the two. And, of course, that might be where we kind of have minor differences between us is that I'm, I'm a uh, libertarian by empirical data and by um, right. you know not so much ideas and more so because of uh, what – real world examples give me whereas you're a you know anarcho-capitalist mostly by purity i'm kind of guessing um so a combination I, of uh, the two yeah 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 right right so i guess we, we do disagree a little bit i'm not so sure that legalization will ever happen with cocaine and meth i think that decriminalization might but legalization is i think it's pretty far off yet it's a tough one right because now so all of the it's 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 a lot easier to argue for weed no one's ever died from it. It has a lot of medicinal properties. There are, you know, it, it's it's an uh, it's a much better uh, and safer alternative pain relief uh, uh, drug than, for example, all these, you know, synthetic opioids or organic opioids like you know opium or heroin. Um, I'm not sure if heroin's considered organic, but it, you know, non-synthesized drugs. Um, it's easy to sell weed. First of all, most of us have tried it, and 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 you know don't necessarily have bad experiences with using it, maybe with the law or whatever, but so it's, it's an easy sell meth. Not so much. I will give you that meth is a tough, when people say to me, like, do you really want cocaine to be legal? And I'll say it's, it's less that I want it to be legal or that I want people to, I certainly do. I want people to do cocaine. No, I don't want people to eat too many carbs. I mean, there's a lot of things I don't want people to do because it, it's unhealthy, but I'd also don't, I don't see the interest in putting someone in a cage as a result of it. So whether it's decriminalization or legalization or whatever else, another thing that I'm not a fan of with legalization is that it usually comes with very heavy regulation and and taxation. You, from the empirical data angle, probably would say, you know, that's more of a a positive thing because that's a source of revenue and so forth. Me, from a philosophical standpoint, sees that as one uh, a drug cartel being replaced with another one uh, that's that's more centralized in power. But regardless, I mean, I, I, I don't think, you know, I, I think we have a long way. Talking with Larry Sharp last week, you know, he said, you know, he comes to these libertarian groups and we're talking about abolishing public education and legalizing everything. And he's like, the general public is so 
far away from what you guys are entertaining, it's not even worth talking about it with them. If you go to a, someone who's, you know, their, their kids in school and the, the school's not doing well and, you know, all they're hearing is that the school just needs more money and you go to them and go, no, that school should be abolished and it should be legal for your kid to do cocaine. Like, you know, it's, it, you're, you're, you're not coming to them with something that they can relate to. You're just scaring them. So I, I, I get that. Um, so uh, let's see here. Oh, that was something I wanted to ask you about. So on your... Uh, chapter on gun control uh you wrote uh it was an interesting statement you wrote you said i chose not to make a natural rights argument because i don't believe the constitution or the bill of rights are impeccable or sacred documents and then you went on to talk about how for example in the seventh amendment uh it it, it references anything over twenty dollars and it doesn't address uh inflation in that figure that you know obviously that twenty dollars is going to be worth less over time uh obviously slavery wasn't properly addressed in the founding documents and and things like that you talked about i i definitely agree with you on your assertion regarding the uh the founding documents and in fact i come from the lysander spooner school of kids who don't recognize authority good uh but the my question to you is uh Something I didn't understand with, with that, were you saying, do you believe that the argument for natural rights is equally shaky, or were you just saying that that wasn't an argument you wish, that was an argument you wish to avoid in favor of just explaining the data on why gun control doesn't work? Um, my stance is that the Second Amendment should exist, much of the First Amendment. Um, however, what my point was, maybe I didn't make it super clear, is that we can't just lay back on, oh, the Constitution says this, therefore we have to do it. You know, right. because there are laws within the Constitution. It was written by humans. It was not written by some god, if you believe in God, or some larger entity. We made right, exactly. mistakes. Right. Um, Amendment 7 obviously didn't count for inflation. They said that if you can't pay $20 for a lawyer, you get you get one from the state. And $20, you know, uh, in the 1770s might mean something, but $20 now is nothing. $20 obviously. lawyer so, now. I wouldn't right. want to be represented by a $20 lawyer now, I can tell you that. <laughs> I wouldn't either. So um, I believe that there should be a constitution amendment for this, for like for gun rights. Uh, I believe there should be somewhere in the constitution or in laws that obviously says, you know, any U.S. citizen should be allowed to carry a uh, firearm for personal protection. However, right. I would lean back on this idea that because the constitution says something, we have to automatically believe it. We automatically have to protect it. Um, it's a it's a really bad argument, you know. It's not one we're going to win because they'll just come back and say, well, that same document referencing also legalized slavery. That same document referencing also to understand inflation. So um, it's a really bad argument to make. So I guess my thing is, you know, um, don't start off with a weak argument to justify guns. We can make a natural law argument and say that because this, this, and this, we need to have gun rights in this country. Although I'm not personally a huge fan of that one. I think that the empirical um, argument is much stronger. Um, we just can't really fall back on that um, from more of a pragmatic point of view. Right. And I mean, it's kind of a. I'm not sure if it's the strictest definition of an a priori argument, but it's it's like one. It's you know you're saying, well, it says this, uh, almost like how you would in theology say, well, in this verse, in this you know scripture or in this book, it says X Y Z, as opposed to fleshing out the logic behind it. And that's sort of when people make these appeals to authority. I guess it's more of an appeal to authority, but you're making this kind of argument of like, well, the Constitution says this. All right, great. Now, 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 this, like you just said, this entire debate becomes a referendum on the Constitution, which was written. Uh, you know, is it better than what it replaced? I, well, no, because the, it replaced the Articles of Confederation. So, no, it definitely is not. Is it better than the British Crown and being subject to a royal family? No. Or yes. 
Uh, is it is it you know something that we should hang our hats on 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 especially when we're talking about freedom and liberty? Uh, no, probably not. Um, so, uh, but, but, so then your, what are your thoughts on, this is something, any, anytime I have people that, that like to, to flesh out, uh, uh philosophy on stuff, I, I like to ask them about this because I'm not a hundred percent on this either, which way I think natural rights. So the, the idea behind natural rights is that we all have, we are all imbued, uh, and, and even if you, so I, I was going to start with, you know, by our creator, e- even taking the religious argument out by virtue of our existence, we have natural rights. So we own ourselves. We own, therefore we own our labor and the product of our labor, which means that we own the property that we can accumulate with our labor. And, 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 you know, we own our lives and our, our choices and things like that. And we can do what we want with those provided we aren't harming someone else's property and, and, and rights and, and, and whatever. Um, the argument is that it's a natural thing and that the, the, when someone says, well, prove to me you have rights, they go, well, it's a natural thing. And yet in nature, um, we don't really see a, a, an argument in favor of rights being a thing. Animals trample all over each other's rights every day. Humans trample each other all over each other's rights every other day. Um, so what is your thought? Because this is kind of an egoist argument, and I'm, I'm, I'm always all over the place on what I think of it. What are, have you really delved much into that? the the underpinning of the idea of even having rights in the first place or is that not something that really preoccupies you anyway because you're more focused on the data of what works and what doesn't no i don't think it's a bad argument i just don't think that it's really going to help us any political favors you right. know um I, it's not that i don't believe in, in the non-aggression principle i do um it's not that i don't believe in taxation and stuff i believe in that as well but making both those arguments really hurts libertarian movement in my opinion and Larry Sharp and I actually agree agreement on this. You talked about Larry Sharp earlier, saying that a lot of libertarians talk about things that the general public is twenty years away. They can go; it really goes from one to hundred very quickly. Saying, "Well, because I was born with natural rights, therefore I should be able to, you know, smoke cocaine. Therefore, there shouldn't be a uh, there there I should have any gun I want, and therefore there shouldn't be a uh, you know child consent laws. Uh, you know, it goes from one to hundred very very quickly when making that right. argument. Not yeah. a bad argument. I don't I don't think it is. I believe in natural rights for every American, but it's also a very weak one. So um, we can mention here and there and say that you know that, um, people should have the right to marry or people should have the right to um, you know smoke marijuana or something like that. But it's really not a good empirical argument. It's not someone that that's really going to win over the hearts and minds of people. Oh yeah, it's certainly. I mean, again, like we were just talking about. You know, when you talk about the Overton window or the three by five, uh, what is it? Tom Woods calls it the three by five. Uh, uh, flashcard of allowable opinion so this is you know what most people think and we're so far over here uh you know that it 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 doesn't even register and 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 i the more i read about the argument against the idea of rights and in favor of perceived self-interest it it's hard to even back that up as an actual philosophy that the concept of rights if rights were a thing why aren't if they're if they were a natural thing why aren't we seeing them in nature um so it's a, so it's a tough one it's it's a useful construct uh to to create boundaries um but but it's not so much you know we we say it's this natural thing as though it is this um this palpable thing that exists you know like like there are these lines that are drawn naturally and they're and they're not so um so yeah so Again, anyone uh, who is interested in the stuff that we're talking about, be sure to check out this book, uh, Igniting Liberty. Now, you do uh, a lot of other writing, and you, you recently wrote about um, you wrote something for uh, being libertarian that I, I was hoping that we. If you do, you still have, do you have a little bit more time? Yeah, yeah, I have time. 
Okay, cool. Um, so I'd like to talk about something that you wrote uh, for Being Libertarian, uh, and it talked about the rise of artificial intelligence. Um, it touched on the uh, push for UBI, universal basic income, and your idea for what you call information capitalism. Talk to me about, about what you wrote. Uh, yeah, lots to unpack, obviously. It's a really long article, but I've been trying to address several <laughs> things. Um, right. I, it is. It's a lot. So one big uh, um, idea right now is that um, robotics and artificial intelligence are going to replace the entire workforce. That This idea that within you know, 10, 15 years, we're going to go from a nation of only 4% unemployment rate to a nation where nobody without a doctor's degree job. That's the kind right. of idea that's being pushed by a lot of people. And, of course, the, the first call to that is universal basic income. So people like Andrew Yang, who's running for president, and right. people like Robert who is a, um, a liberal activist, have called for universal basic income. This idea that, and it comes off as somewhat Marxist, that the government should give $1,000 every single month to um, every single American just for existing. So just because I'm on this earth breathing, I got a $1,000 check from the government because it's going to be so necessary in the future because everyone's going to be jobless that we need a, just a small amount of sustainable income just so that we can get by. Right. Uh, so... Stuff. I kind of addressed this idea first. I'll get into international capitalism later. Um, this uh, idea right here, 330 million people in throughout the United States and at $12,000 a year, is it costs us around $4 trillion. Um, that $4 trillion is how much we currently spend on everything. So $4 trillion includes military, that includes health care, that includes education, that includes welfare, that includes interest payments. Everything we currently spend in the government is about $4 trillion. Um, and we're obviously running huge deficits as it is right now, and we're also $22 trillion in debt. And not only that, but our income tax receipts this past year were only $1.6 trillion. We cannot mathematically pay for another $4 trillion program. We right. can't mathematically pay for it. However, um, just take a step back for a moment and actually look at the argument of, you know, will uh, half of America be jobless in 10 years due to robotics and artificial information? Um, that doesn't really support that either. Certain industries will disappear, that's for sure, you know. Right. Um, I mean, we don't really have many elevator attendants and farmers and, you know, gas pumpers anymore. We did 40, 50 years ago. Those right. jobs, just, but they're replaced by um, other jobs as well. Uh, the World Economic Forum, this actually not a study I cited in the actual uh, paper I wrote itself, is said that in the next decade, about 133 million jobs will be created because of artificial intelligence, because of um, the advances technology, but only 75 million will be just displaced. And a lot of the studies that um, are, are basically support the idea that artificial intelligence or robotics will um, take over the American workforce um, are also really poorly constructed. There is a 2013 Oxford study that said that 47% uh, of, uh, jobs will be at risk of being lost within the next two, uh, 20 years due to artificial intelligence, robotics, and that uh, taking over the workforce over real human capital. Right. The problem is if you read the limitation section in that article, I have an exact quote right here, if you read the limitation section, it says, quote, the actual extent and pace of co computerization will depend on several additional factors which were left unaccounted for. That is the exact quote from that, um, from that exact study by Carl Bennett Frey and Michael A. Osborne. So okay. these um, economists who obviously got together and said this is the, the effects of that never even tried to put in the effort of counting for what jobs could be created because of the innovation technology. Um, so the um, right now, the evidence saying that artificial intelligence robotics will take over the entire workforce to the point that will be all unemployed, unemployed is shaky at the very best. Yeah, I, I 
So I, I had shared with you that video because I'm, you know, I was yeah. very much, as soon as I started hearing that, well, they're going to, you know, the robots are coming to take all the jobs. And I'm like, this is the Luddite argument uh, episode 6 million. Like, you know, it's, it's once again, we're hearing people say that automation is going to take all of our jobs and, you know, they're not factoring in the greater efficiency and how it frees up more capital and how it creates new innovative things that we can't even think of. If you tried to explain, and I'll say this to people, if you try to try to explain what the average person would be doing for a living to someone a hundred years ago, they wouldn't even understand the words you were saying. It's not even that they could couldn't conceptualize what you were even talking about. They wouldn't even understand the the phraseology you were using because the society is so different than even a hundred years ago, even fifty years ago. Um, that it, it's truly the stuff of of you know science fiction at the time, uh, Asimov and, and and things like that. They got pretty darn close, and even they couldn't fully understand what, for example, the internet would look like. They got things like air travel and flying cars and stuff that they could conceptualize in their time, but they couldn't get the internet because it was so the idea of having instant access to the entire world's uh, uh, human knowledge at, at your fingertip on a mobile device that you know that comes with a, a you know your your phone plan that that, that doesn't you know they couldn't even. Uh, uh, process something like that or they they had no uh, uh basis to even begin to understand that so my i kind of fell back on saying well there's just going to be our society is going to look so different than now that that's what we'll be doing that and the robots will be freeing us up to do that but i did see and i had shared it with you the there's a video called uh uh humans need not apply and it, it basically mm-hmm. argued that artificial intelligence is rapidly reaching a point where it will be so much better at everything than us and even art and um, uh, songwriting and things like that, that there just won't be any jobs for us. Um, My only argument against it again was that, uh, or actually, I don't think I've told you this, but my argument whenever someone says, you know, well, the the, the robots are going to render us obsolete in every single way is I say, if and when that happens and artificial AI makes us obsolete at all levels, I think it's also going to probably just end up realizing we're inefficient and unnecessary and just kill us all. So I hope and pray that you have a more argu- uh, optimistic argument uh, about this than I do. Mm-hmm. So what, oh, what would your... I'm not... No, no problem. So I, what would your argument be against what was on humans need not apply that that the robots are just going to take every possible thing that we could do as as human beings yeah from a more conceptual standpoint um say that the uh there's a historical argument to have there's also a conceptual argument i can kind of touch base this on both on the conceptual okay. argument to say that there's a new technological innovation course um there'll be new jobs uh basically created from three different avenues first off the Companies and the um, innovative companies that create the new technology, say it's a um, self-flying plane, right? Let's go with that. Um, so say places like Boeing that create the self-flying plane, um, well, they'll have to obviously create jobs because they need engineers, they need manufacturers, they need laborers actually, you know, physically put the plane together in, in one moment. They need, right. you know, perhaps people in the finance department to make sure the company still ran smoothly and everything like that. They need some accountants. Now, there's also two other avenues. Now, once the um, company, in this case, will go with Boeing because they, they produce airplanes, um, once they actually start seeing revenues and profits increase um, and things like that, there's essentially two different things that um, will come of that. And it's not just the, com- the company that makes these planes. It'll also become other companies that will benefit from this, uh, maybe air travel agencies, things like that. Now, they usually one of two things. Either from one perspective, 
they can lower the prices of actually of air travel, maybe lower the prices of you know coach and first class, and you know instead of charging a few hundred dollars to fly from LA to um, you know uh, Chicago, uh, Chicago, Illinois, they might charge only like fifty, sixty dollars. Um, that's one route. The other route is that they're going to open up new, new locations, trying to expand their business throughout the globe. So um, obviously, if you expand your company, that in itself will create jobs. The second option is to lower prices. If you lower prices, um, people have more um, spending money in their wallet. So if you spend half as much as you did previously to uh, pay for a plane ticket from Los Angeles to Chicago, you'll have more money you can spend in other restaurants and other um, and other venues and other businesses that that money we circulate back into the workforce in other areas and right. that will allow those companies to hire people as well. So that's a conceptual argument, basically saying that you know no matter what happens, the money you can move somewhere else and the efficiency can take away from the workforce. Uh, the more historical argument is that we've seen great technological advancements in the past. You know, since human history, it just meant that you know the, the slaves were more efficient. When um, when picking cotton and actually in, in, in the early 1900s, uh, when we saw that factories became much more efficient, we had steam powered things and you know cars were created, um, and we really didn't see uh, a <clears throat> major uh, negative impact in the workforce. You know, the Industrial Revolution in 1910s, 1920s didn't really uh, cause any horrible you know shake in unemployment. Um, right. So I guess historically that, that argument is untrue, and conceptually that argument has been proved untrue as well. Fair enough. Yeah, it's it's it's. I, I see both arguments. I I don't see. I do not see an argument for for uh, universal basic income, a good one, because like you said, it's going to cost a fortune. Let's talk about the idea that you can live on a thousand bucks a month, uh, <laughs> and then also let's talk about the idea that you can live off a thousand bucks a month when the price of everything goes up because when everyone gets when everyone is getting twelve thousand dollars a year right off the bat for not doing anything mm-hmm. they're just getting a thousand bucks a month right off the bat. what that does is it raises and I, i'm i'm telling the audience this more than you because you know this that it just raises the price floor for especially for basic goods and services so it so okay great you have twelve thousand more a year and everything costs at least twelve thousand more a year, especially the most basic things like groceries and you know basic you know insurance for your car and things like that. You know the most the things that that the working poor also need. Um, so that means that it will disproportionately harm the very people that it was supposedly helping in the first place. Um, and it also you want to talk about job losses, a country that has to have whose government has this kind of a program in place, the tax burden that they would have to have to to impose this kind of thing on people is going to just drive businesses you know if we're if we're envisioning this this futuristic post-apocalyptic hellscape or i guess not apocalyptic but post-robotic hellscape where only the super rich who own all these robots are making any money and everyone else is just sitting there doing nothing because the robots have made them obsolete in every single field available what makes you think they're going to stay in a high tax country that gives money to all those people for not doing anything? They're of course going to go to places where they don't have to pay the taxes and uh, and and you know that that they you know pay as little as possible. So you know there's multiple reasons why UBI is not a good idea. But like you said, I'm I'm not I I, I can see the argument that I believe that robots, let's say 50 years from now, will be doing most of the stuff that we can even conceptualize a person doing. Right. But 
I also know, like you said, historically, it's going to be hard for me to conceptualize what people are doing 50 years from now. Just like if someone, if I went back to the 60s and told someone that I had, you know, retired by age 35 because I sold my website design company, they'd say, what's a website? What does that even mean? And so fast forwarding 50 years from now, someone comes to me and goes, oh, that's okay. We're all just doing bleep bloops. And I'm like, great. I'm happy for you. I don't know what that is, but you know, hopefully it's not called bleep bloop, but whatever it is, you know, they'll, they, they'll be doing whatever that thing is in the future. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we, I'm glad that we, because I get a lot of people asking about that. I, I probably want to uh, maybe have you on in the future to delve more into that because I, I think there are a lot of, there are an unsettlingly large number of libertarians who are advocating for UBI. Have you noticed that? Uh, I actually have, but it wouldn't totally surprise me. I could see some um, self-declared libertarians claiming that, but I don't really know many. Um, I only know how we can be libertarians so claim that, you know, I, mean, I guess here's the thing. If you're going to be a libertarian that opposes um, the Affordable Care Act or that opposes welfare, great. Those programs cost probably one-tenth to one-twentieth the amount that UBI would cost. Right. I don't know how you can look at one and say that this costs too much and then turn around and say, oh, let's go create a $4 trillion program. So um, maybe there's some self-described libertarians. Maybe there's some people that call themselves like libertarian socialists or something like that. But there's no one um, who has similar views to you and myself that uh actually has that belief. <laughs> Not a lot of capitalists. Um it, it's 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 interesting though cuz there are some that do it and it's like you said I'll say I'll say yeah okay but you're against the welfare state, right? And they'll be like yeah yeah the welfare state's terrible and I'm like this is welfare on steroids and speedballs and meth. Like it's it, it's it's state. Yeah, it's like you said it is it is an actual state of welfare. It is the state completely taking over your 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 giving everyone money just for existing that is the ultimate in the welfare state and like you said it's four trillion dollars and that was four trillion dollars a year at a thousand bucks a month right 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 okay so for those watching at home tell me or no don't tell me think to yourself what your average monthly cost of living is okay and now whatever so let's say if you if it's costing you $3,000 $3,000 a month to live. That's three times uh, uh, the thousand bucks a month. So now take that $4 trillion and multiply it by three. Now it's a $12 trillion program. And then again, once you start factoring in inflation and and, and the price uh, floor being raised each time they do this, th- go ahead. I was going to say population growth as well. Oh, population. Yeah, I didn't even think of that because people are going to be, man, you're making free money. You're going to be having kids too. So, I mean, it's... it's it, it, it's four trillion is is the baseline beginning of what will easily become a you know twenty thirty forty trillion dollar. I mean, you think you want to talk about debt bubbles now? I mean, it's it's a it's absurd. So yeah, yeah. There's no there's and again that assumes everyone's still paying the tax revenue they are, and we know what happens when taxes go up. Revenue goes down because people are are moving. So yeah, I I like I said, my my end game argument is that if we actually truly reach a point where there's nothing we can do, I think the robots are going to just start killing us. I think they're gonna they're gonna. I hate to end on a on a positive note like that, but I, I think they'll be like, why are why why are the robots here, or why are the humans here? Oh, because they have rights. What, what? No, we don't. We're robots. We don't believe in rights. Um. So anyway, um. So thank you again for coming on. It was it was a blast, and I'm really glad you were able to to fit me in. I hope to have you on again. Before we go, I want to give you a chance to tell us anything, talk about anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about on this show. 
um, any upcoming stuff that you want to promote, any articles coming out, any new books coming out, obviously plug Igniting Liberty. Anything you want to talk about, Jake Dorsch, the floor is yours. Yeah, I don't have a lot to talk about, I guess. Um, you'll see more articles from me in the future. I have a few that are, are the pipes are ready that I'm looking at publishing, not just at Being Libertarian LLC, but perhaps at um, other organizations as well. Um, I will say this much, even though uh, and I Liberty is my first book that I co-authored. I, of course, didn't write the entire thing. I wrote four chapters, and it kind of was a really good way to get my feet wet. This right. is not the end of me. Okay, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I'm actually working on a uh, few projects in the loop right now where I'm going to be looking at possibly writing an entire book by myself, perhaps with someone as a forward and afterward. So I'm not going anywhere. Um, fastest way to reach me is just on Facebook. Just type in Jake Dorsch, um, J-A-K-E space D-O-R-R-S-E-H. Uh, you'll see I post uh, periodically, and you also you can just message me. Um, I'll talk to anyone, even if you're a, a socialist, or you know, even if you hit my guts, I'll gladly talk to you. And you know, I'll talk about artificial intelligence. I'll talk about robots killing off, uh, killing us off in the future as well. That can be your you know? book. That could be uh, what your book can be about. Right, right. It could be. I think there's always uh, some movies about that too. There's uh, Terminator. There's also iRobot. So, um, <laughs> not sure if that's necessary, but maybe, maybe in the future. Um, so now let's plug in. Obviously, um, buy my book, Igniting Liberty, on um, on Amazon. It is the number one new release in military policy, the number one new release in libertarianism, and the number one new release in uh, natural law perspectives. So uh, make sure to buy a copy of Igniting Liberty. Um, be sure to follow me on Facebook. Be sure to follow my fellow Americans on Facebook as well. Make sure you keep in the loop with uh, Spike Send. And uh, that's all I really have. I like that. From now on, I want my guests to counter plug me at the end too that's a new requirement for all guests if you're if any future guests that are tuning in that you have to not plug my show at the end too um so yeah be sure to what's that you're not doing a job you have to be asking for that that's the thing like i started off with it and then i kind of trail off and i i I want my guests to do well so but no i appreciate it um but yeah no we're i definitely want to have you on in the future guys jake dorsch i'm this is, you know, I, I wasn't being tongue in cheek when I said I think this is good. He's going to be a household name, especially in libertarian circles very soon. Be sure to, to keep an eye on him and uh, uh, we will definitely have you back, Jake. I, I hope you had fun. Yeah, I did. Thank you so much. Cool. And uh, if you can just stick around, uh, I, I want to talk to you a bit during the outro, um, but just uh, stick around for a minute. Guys, thank you again uh, for tuning in to this action packed episode of my fellow Americans. Uh, check us out tomorrow night on the writer's block where Matt is interviewing uh, Daniel Berman, who is uh, running for the Libertarian Party nomination for president in 2020. Uh, check out on Friday the, uh, completely blank, uh, Jason Lyon on uh, on uh, Mr. America, The Bearded Truth. He is uh, uh, wrapping up the week with his... Uh, his show where he'll be kind of uh, giving his thoughts on the things that have happened the past few days. Uh, Have a great weekend and then come back for Monday where we will be starting the week as we always do with Mr. America again with Jason Lyon. Uh, And then check us out on Tuesday uh, night uh, uh, for uh, the Muddy Waters of Freedom. That'll be me and Matt Wright as we parse through the week's events as we see them. And then next week on uh, My Fellow Americans, I will be interviewing uh, the people behind the uh, new documentary that's going to be coming up, Living in Liberty. So be sure to check that out. My old friend, Joshua, Joshy Bear Smith. Um, and um, so, guys, thanks again for tuning in. Uh, we will see you again very soon. And God bless you.
my skin, my friend. In reality, you are my kin. Though I view the world through another's iris. If you slide in my kicks, it might fit. We might just unite and come together, become hybrid. At the least, slightly like-minded. Indeed, the life I've lived brings light to kindness. All you need is a sign. Put a cease to the crimes. Put an ease to the minds like mine. Sometimes darkness is all I find. You know what they say about an eye for an eye. In a time when the blind is the blind. Who am I to deny? I would cry when a loved one dies. I recognize that body outside. Put a hole in the body that was alive. Now we find the chalk outline. Find out how, but you never know why. It ain't even make it to the news at night. It ain't even make it to the news at night. That's my sister, mother, father, brother, son. That's one of mine. All these tears, I close my eyes. Open up the only find. I'm in line. There's a point that's murder happening all the time. Who would want to raise a child? Whom the throne is flashing by? Now you have to say goodbye when you watch them all the 